I'd like to take this opportunity to set the record straight about a number of issues which seem to have been overlooked, if not entirely misunderstood. I think you will misconstrue the nature of this trilemma. Let's take another look and make sure we've left no stone unturned. I'm William O'Flaherty, and you're listening to All About Jack, a C.S. Lewis podcast. Today's program is the seventh and next to last in a series on C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheist. I've had the pleasure of the author of the book, Peter S. Williams, join me along the way, and in a few moments he will do that as well. I won't take the time to recap all the previous shows, but I will remind you to listen to past episodes by visiting EssentialCSLewis.com. When you go to EssentialCSLewis.com, look for the All About Jack section to get the archives, or if you just want to check out the podcast, you can go directly to where the files are hosted at AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. Dot com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Again, that's allaboutjack.podbean.com. Now, in order to get our guest on the show, I will first welcome back another Peter who has been doing an excellent job sharing co-hosting duties with me. Welcome back, Peter B. Thank you, William. It's good to be back. I can't believe we're on the penultimate episode already. This has flown by. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, now, Peter Byram is a freelance video editor who, among other things, is a strong advocate of defending the Christian faith through apologetics. Now I'll let him introduce and welcome our guest. Right. We have with us Christian philosopher and apologist Peter S. Williams. He is assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gimlacollin School of Journalism and Communication, which is part of NLA University in Norway. Peter also works with the UK Damaris Trust leading philosophy conferences for A-level students and undertaking writing, speaking, debating and broadcasting engagements. Peter has authored several books, including A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism and, of course, C.S. Lewis versus The New Atheists. Welcome back to the show again, Peter S. Williams. Thank you very much, Peter. It's delightful to be joining you guys again. Well, as previously mentioned, this is the seventh show, and only one more is left after this. The name of this chapter is Jesus in the Dock. Let's begin our exploration today with this question. In this chapter, again called Jesus in the Dock, which is somewhat provocative choice of words, implying that significant judgments are being passed about Jesus, what sort of judgments are covered in this chapter? coming from both Lewis and the New Atheist, and who was Jesus or wasn't? Uh, indeed, it is uh, quite a provocative title, isn't it? I've kind of um, changed slightly a title that Lewis himself uh, used, um, uh, the title God in the Dock, and um, put Jesus in there. Um, Lewis also um, once wrote an essay called What Are We to Make of Jesus? And in this uh, chapter, I really look at the, the central questions uh, about uh, Jesus, about our sources of information, historically speaking, uh, about him, and about what judgment we can come to on the basis of those sources about who we think Jesus was. And as Lewis pointed out, if we come to um, the Christian judgment of who uh, Jesus was, then we very much find ourselves in the, the kind of the reverse situation of um, the title of the chapter, Far From Jesus Being the Dock, we find ourselves in the dock uh, before a very real Jesus uh, with whom uh, we have to, to deal um, if Jesus is indeed, as Christians believe him to be, uh, God. So that's the, the question uh, at the heart of this chapter, really. 
Now, I gather that G.K. Chesterton was very influential on Lewis in this area as well. Chesterton ultimately became a favourite author of Lewis. And in this chapter, uh, you mention him reading The Everlasting Man by Chesterton a few years before his conversion. This is C.S. Lewis. So what impact um, did that have on Lewis? What sort of um, points did it help Lewis to understand in shaping his own thought on this issue? I think Lewis um, commented something like um, he came to think that G.K. Chesterton was the most sensible author that he'd ever read, apart from all that Christianity stuff, <laughs> which is, of course, <laughs> central uh, to what Chesterton, uh, as a Catholic, uh, wrote about, particularly in his apologetics works like uh, The Everlasting Man. I think it allowed Lewis to see um, a, a rational presentation of the, of the Christian view of human history uh, for the first time. Uh, gave him a clear sort of idea of what Christianity uh, was about in in that framework, but also clearly influenced Lewis's um, thinking and his later apologetics in in certain ways, um, particularly in terms of, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a little while, what's come to be known as the the lunatic liar lord argument uh, about who Jesus was. And that's something you can definitely see the roots of uh, in Chesterton's writings, and of course, is a is a uh, sort of argument for the deity of Christ with a with a long and venerable history. But that's an argument that that came uh, to Lewis's attention uh, through reading Chesterton. I think. Well, that very issue is up next in this chapter. You discuss Hitchens's view of Lewis's famous trilemma. Mm-hmm. First, review what it is before then sharing his view, and then tell us what you think about it. So the Lewis discussion of this um, so-called trilemma uh, argument, that's not uh, what Lewis calls it. I think that's a, a phrase that comes from uh, the the Scotsman John Duncan, who, who put it this way. He said, Christ either deceived mankind by a conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. Um, said John Duncan in there. He was an 18th, 19th century uh, Christian author. Um, and so that the trilemma starts with the, the claim that Christ made certain uh, very um, large claims as to his uh, own identity and then asks, uh, given that Christ made those claims, um, what uh, explanatory category do we put him in? And which of those uh, available explanatory categories fits best with the rest of our available evidence about Christ's character? Um, so it's raising a, an issue about Christ's character and how we explain who he was, given that someone with that character uh, also made um, these amazing claims about himself, um, that he either obviously had to, to believe uh, sincerely or not. Uh, and... Um, what uh, kind of category do we put him in as, you know, as, as Duncan's saying, is he self-deceived um, as sort of a lunatic, as sometimes it's put? Uh, was he, you know, not self-deceived, but but nonetheless not God, in which case he's deceiving others, uh, a liar, as it's sometimes put? Or was he um, both sincere and actually correct about his own uh, self-identification? Uh, uh, in which case, case it's also sometimes put to finish the alliteration, he was indeed the Lord. Now, Richard Dawkins also has something to say about Lewis's trilemma. 
he um, criticizes it for missing what he thinks is actually a fourth possibility. Um, he thinks it's not a trilemma. He actually thinks that, um, I think the words he even uses in The God Delusion are something like, um, this is a fourth possibility, which is almost too obvious to be worth even mentioning. So what is this fourth possibility yeah. that Dawkins proposes and has he destroyed Lewis's trilemma with this fourth option <laughs> not at all yeah so so Hitchens who you mentioned uh, says he doesn't like the argument uh, and that it's a sort of false dilemma but he doesn't even um, actually go to the lengths of proposing what uh, fourth alternative you might look at Dawkins as you say actually puts forward uh, an alternative to the usual categories uh, discussed uh, but Dawkins is fourth possibility uh, is simply to say that uh, Jesus uh, made these claims to deity, but that he was uh, simply uh, sincerely uh, deluded about them, uh, but that he was not mad. Um, So, you know, people make mistakes about things all the time, says Dawkins. Um, They can be sincerely mistaken about things, and Jesus was sincerely mistaken um, in thinking that he was um, the God of Israel. Um, but that doesn't uh, make him uh, a lunatic, and therefore there's no um, tension uh, between saying that Jesus is a loony and the other historical information we think we might be able to glean about the the sameness of his moral teaching and and stuff like this. Um, I think this is probably the the least plausible answer uh, to the to the trilemma that I've ever heard. Um, I've quoted Dawkins on this to a number of audiences in giving talks on this this topic, and they always uh, just laugh Dawkins' fourth possibility um, out of court, really, because it's just obvious um, that if a first-century uh, Jewish chap like Jesus sincerely thought that he was God um, when he wasn't, um, that he is automatically in the lunatic category. I really like Peter uh, Kraft's way of, of explaining this. He, he says that sort of the, the really uh, good measure of your sanity um, is the, the gap between your self-image and what you really are. And the bigger that gap is, uh, you know, the more adrift from reality you are. Um, and it's pretty hard to imagine a, a bigger gap than the gap between the, um, the, uh, the, the sinful uh, created creature and uh, the creator of all the universe that is represented um, by a first century Jew wrongly but sincerely uh, thinking that he's God. Um, so it, it just simply does not represent a, a, a additional category to those that the argument has already considered. And didn't, um, I think, wasn't it Nicky? I think I've heard you quote before as well. Um, oh, Nicky yeah. Gumbel. Nicky Gumbel. Yeah, I, I like what he has to say yeah. about this. Nicky an English uh, vicar um, associated with a course about exploring Christianity called the Alpha Course. And um, Nicky Gumbel, in reviewing um, The God Delusion, said that the, the ironic thing about The God Delusion was that Dawkins had this view that... Um, Everybody who believed in, believes in God is, is deluded simply because they believe that there is a God. Uh, but that Jesus was not deluded, um, even though he thought there, that he was God. That just doesn't square up as a view, does it? <laughs> yeah. mm, not at all. Not at all. Well, now, another fourth option which has been proposed uh, recently, however, is that Jesus might not have been a liar, lunatic, or lord, but that he might merely have been a legend. Why didn't Lewis include this fourth L in his argument, and 
why would it be necessary for him to include it if he were writing today? Well, it's in the the context of his discussion uh, of this argument in Mere Christianity that Lewis's discussion of this argument is, is most known. And there he's really using it as an argument against those who say, who want to say that Jesus was just a good moral human teacher. And he's saying that, no, given that he also made these claims about himself, that's that's the last thing we can kind of say about him. Um, But actually, in his essay that I mentioned earlier, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? He does, for example, say there that one way of trying to reconcile these contradictory phenomena, uh, one attempt to consist in saying that that, that Jesus um, did not really say these things, but that his followers exaggerated the story. And so the legend grew up that he, he said them. Uh, and there Lewis actually sort of points out that, that a similar sort of trilemma argument would apply to the uh, monotheistic Jewish um, disciples of Jesus who are meant to have created this legend that Jesus uh, claimed to be divine when he didn't. Uh, why would uh, such people make such claims? Were they themselves deluded uh, about it or lying uh, about it? Uh, what have you, where would they have got such uh, un-Jewish views from at the time and and so on. So Lewis does actually explore this um, legend option and goes into um, his own background as a literary historian. He says, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they're not legends. Uh, And so he does explore various angles on this sort of legend uh, option uh, although not in the context of mere Christianity, uh, but as I say in this um, paper of his, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? Um, yes, because it's only actually just come back to my memory. Um, I think in 2013, Peter, you actually spoke at a conference, uh, an apologetics conference um, in London. And mm-hmm. the subtitle of that conference was about, was Jesus a liar, lunatic, legend or Lord? So so it seems even today that that accusation keeps coming up that, you know, maybe Jesus was just a legend. Maybe Jesus didn't even exist and and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, have things got worse, in your opinion, for Jesus's historical credibility since Lewis was writing? Not at all. I think actually, if anything, things have got better uh, for Jesus's historical credibility. There certainly are still uh, fringe scholars and fringe uh, websites and so on that will claim you know jesus didn't even exist that he's a legend uh, to that extent uh, and so on um but actually since lewis's death of course we've had a lot more time to discover more manuscripts uh, to make the manuscript tradition of the gospels even firmer than they were in lewis's day uh, to dig up more things in archaeology uh, that verify things that the bible Uh, said that Lewis uh, didn't have access to as external verifications um, to do a lot more uh, scholarship, um, that we've come away from the kind of Boltman, German-influenced school of religions uh, way of thinking about Jesus in terms of comparing him with um, the pagan Greek uh, mythology and so on as a sort of background to try and say that, oh, Jesus is just another dying, rising corn god and so on, which is something that Lewis um, interacts with a lot as as a view. And his interactions with that is still very interesting. But today, um, the huge majority of scholars would simply sidestep the issue and say um, that actually, uh, given the, the Jewish reclamation of Jesus, as it's called within Jesus studies, 
that the, these pagan uh, myths and so on are just completely the wrong background to try and understand Jesus's Jewish uh, context and the Jewishness of Jesus and the disciples and the Gospels uh, is the key interpretive framework and that there is um, no influence uh, upon um, Christology from pagan uh, myths about dying and rising gods or gods who have so-called virgin births and so on and all of this. Um, that is really a dead issue uh, within modern New Testament scholarship. Um, so we've, we've moved on uh, quite a long way uh, now from the, the kind of um, some of the sceptical views that were around in Lewis's day that he uh, argued against in um, famous papers of his like uh, Fern Seeds and Elephants, where he's talking about these New Testament scholars who he thinks can't actually read the lines they're so keen on reading between the lines and saying oh yes you know this story must have been invented by that community and influenced by this that, and the other and he says they, they don't really know their literature and the type of literature that the gospels are is not uh, this sort of mythological legendary kind of literature that some of them were trying to portray it as and that absolutely is now the mainstream view um, that the gospels are most uh, parallel to first century biographical works and that they are historical rather than uh, mythological works that they are all uh, the new testament was written within the first century uh, within a generation or two of christ rather than you know hundreds of years later and so on so uh, actually the the general drift of new testament studies has been much more towards the, the solidity and the historical reliability uh, of the the new testament documents so once again, it's another mismatch between what popular culture makes of Jesus and what the Academy is saying about uh, him. <laughs> absolutely, yes. Yeah. Don't get your information on New Testament studies from the New Atheists. Um, they are uh, at least 100 years out of date. <laughs> of course, some people don't even go that far. They just get their information from Facebook <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> on these things. But uh, anyway, well, one final question here, but let me remind the listener that we're uh, examining Chapter 6 of your book, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist, and that chapter is called Jesus in the Dock. We encourage people to get a copy of your book. It's available in ebook form and in print form because, uh, for one thing, we're obviously not covering uh, all the material in this chapter or the other chapters that we discussed previously. Well, now, again, in this chapter, you uh, criticized Richard Dawkins at one point for citing a professor of German language rather than a historian. Yet, not only are none of the New Atheists professional historians, but neither was Lewis. So what did Lewis have that the New Atheists don't? Well, as I said in in regards with the last question, that at least um, Lewis had a training in literature, a love for um, mythological literature. Indeed, he really loved the myths of the of the Norse uh, and so on, and he'd been, uh, as he says at one place, reading uh, myths all his all his life, and really loved that kind of background. Um, and came to to see um, that the Gospels were simply not that kind of literature. Um, particularly the place to go and, and see him arguing this um, is in his essay, as I say, um, called uh, the rather bizarre title, Fern, Fern Seeds and Elephants. Um, but there he's, he's taking on some of the sceptical views around in New Testament studies at, at his time. Uh, and the, the drift of history has been with, with Lewis on this one. Um, we're now into the so-called third quest for the historical Jesus. And as I say, the, the sort of interpretive background and the way of uh, the kind of thinking about what kind of literature 
uh, is the New Testament? Uh, are these uh, mythological, legendary, late uh, discussions um, influenced by you know, word of mouth on word of mouth on word of mouth? No, they're not. They're almost uh, contemporaneous, uh, first century, historically interested documents. Yes, they have theological agendas, um, but they have those theological agendas because of the history that they are also clearly interested in. All right. Well, unfortunately, that will be the end of this seventh episode dealing with the sixth chapter in C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. As we mentioned just a moment ago, this chapter is called Jesus in the Dock. And we mentioned just a few minutes ago that we aren't covering all the material, so we want to encourage you to get the book, as well as listen to the other shows if you haven't already. And I mentioned in another program that uh, the uh, these episodes uh, probably will bear listening to a couple times as a person who does the uh, editing of the the show and then the preparations i find I'll, i'm learning even much more as i go through it uh, again and again it's uh, very helpful well you've been listening to all about jack and c.s lewis podcast i'm william o'flaherty the producer and director of the show as i mentioned at the top of the program you can hear the previous shows in the series along with other podcasts by going to essentialcslewis.com or the location where the audio files are hosted directly which is allaboutjack.podbean.com. Again, that's allaboutjack.podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Either place is also where you can check the show notes for any links mentioned to places that you can go online. Next time will be our final show in this series on C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheist. But before leaving, let me thank my co-host for working with me today. Thanks again, Peter B., Thank you very much, William. I always enjoy coming on here. It's great. Let's see, Peter B. I understand that a video is available online that contains uh, your testimony as, as part uh, of that video. Why don't you, as we uh, close out the program, why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Well, um, yes, in 2012, I was invited to participate in um, Unbelievable, the conference uh, of that year. Um, each year, Justin Briley, who runs the show Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio, which is all about sort of um, apologetics and getting Christians and non-Christians talking to each other. He was running that conference and asked me to join in with that in a seminar called Confessions of a Former Atheist. And so um, it was uh, myself and another ex-atheist called Daniel Roger. Uh, and we were both giving our testimony alongside Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe, actually. Um, so that was a very big privilege, being able to give our testimony alongside him, because, you know, he's another very, I guess, big name apologist who's done all sorts of amazing work about, um, you know, the interaction between the biblical texts and astrophysics and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that was um, that was a really good experience, actually. Um, now, funnily enough, that was another editing job uh, that I was um, uh, that I was given to do uh, to actually edit and prepare all of the video of that conference to be releasing on DVD. Uh, and they released it on DVD. But um, actually, just within the last few weeks, that video has now been released online for free viewing at Premier TV. So, well, in fact, all of the videos have all of um, about about 10 hours <laughs> of really, I think, very good apologetics footage from that conference is now available on Premier TV. So um, it's unbelievable, the conference 2012, and our 
seminar, the one that I'm in, is Confessions of a Former Atheist. And so you'll you'll get a good bit of um, story there of all our testimonies, and then we take uh, questions from the audience. Excellent. Of course, I'll have links in the show notes uh, for that, so I hope people will check that out. Also, thanks goes to Peter S. for fielding all the questions thrown at him today. Thank you, Peter S. Thank you very much. And lastly, just a bit more of a personal thing about yourself. You are also a composer. You do music. Uh, I do. Um, rather as a hobby now. And, you know, I, I started off at my, my first university. I was doing at Cardiff University a, a joint degree in uh, English literature and music. And I took philosophy as my additional course. And I ended up uh, at the end of that process graduating uh, single honours in philosophy. But I did do music uh, in my first year there. And in recent years, I've come back to um, composing uh, as a bit of a hobby. And um, uh, you can find some of my compositions up on my website, peterswilliams.com. There's a page there where some of my music's up already. And you can um, hear some uh, computer file music of my composition program playing that music and um, download the PDFs of the scores and things, particularly so you can you can know what the choir are actually meant to be singing when the computer mm. can only go R ah, uh, and so on. Um, but yeah, for some of that music has even been used for um, sort of background introduction music to some on- online um, uh, apologetics videos for for myself and for Bill Craig and uh, awesome, yeah. friends' projects of one kind or another. So um, yeah, occasionally I do a little bit of uh, composing uh, that uh, appears around the place. Yeah, and I, I do have to say it, it is very good music. I, I really enjoyed listening just to those clips, even though yes, you might have. Uh, composed it on, you know, I don't know if it's a MIDI sequencer or computer or whatever. It's, it's it a might... computer program called um, Sibelius, ah, uh, right. which is a, a composition program. You, you, you know, you put in all the notes and tell it mm. uh, what instruments to make it play and so on. And it does it does a pretty good stab at reproducing uh, the orchestra and the, the instruments and so on. But but the, I think the prime limitation, of course, is that the choir, if you have one, voices can only go R and uh, they can't actually say the words even though you can type them under the under the score yeah well it's it, it's very well nonetheless i think it's it's it comes out very well i mean i think the actual you know tune of the thing is very enjoyable very soothing actually so yeah i like it let's see if we can get in front of an orchestra someday <laughs> oh, that would be lovely well before letting you go peter s what can people expect in our next and final show so, in our ultimate uh, show, uh, we'll be looking at the conclusion of uh, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists. Uh, first Things First uh, is the title here, uh, using, again, a phrase from the Lewis oeuvre. All right, and then we'll also kind of squeeze in a few summary points that uh, kind of recap some of the earlier shows as well. So we trust listeners will join us for that last program and also encourage others to check out the series as well. Additionally, when you visit either place to hear other shows, be aware that I also share some of my uh, speaking about C.S. Lewis on the podcast. This includes a short talk I did in earlier 2014 about quotations misattributed to Lewis And then I also shared uh, not that long ago a talk I did in Tennessee about Lewis as preacher. Uh, These were times when Lewis actually gave a sermon. Uh, This year, 2014, is the 75th anniversary that he gave his first sermon. If you don't know what it is, you'll have to go through my archives to find out. Again, you can catch all that by going to allaboutjack.podbean.com or by visiting essentialcslewis.com. 